Welcome to Pipeline, Profiles in Philosophy and Education. I'm your host, Winston C. Thompson. Pipeline is a monthly short-form interview program focused on contemporary scholars. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, please visit pipeline.fm. Pipeline is made possible by the generous support of the Education Department of the University of New Hampshire. This episode, we're joined by Nick Berbulis, University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Nick, thank you so much for joining us. So, uh, in order to get us started, I think it might be quite generative if you could give our listeners a sense of how you came into the field of philosophy and education. Mm -hmm. Uh, What was your genesis in this work? Uh, Could you speak to that a bit? Um, Sure. So, I I came into philosophy of education partly by accident. Uh, I was a philosophy and religion major in college. I was thinking about going into education, uh, but going into school uh, teaching uh, as a secondary school teacher. And I was visiting schools on the East Coast. Okay. and at one point I was at Harvard and I walked into the wrong office. Oh, really? Uh, I didn't know it was the wrong office. And um, I was sitting there and suddenly realized I was in the wrong room and jumped up and said, I, I'm in the wrong room. Huh. Uh, the, the woman there at the desk said, well, um, the, the person you're going to speak with is ready to see you now. Uh, what are your interests? And I said, well, I'm a philosopher, but I'd like to be teaching. And uh, she said, well, you're not going to teach philosophy in high school. And I said, no, I thought I might teach writing or social studies. Sure. Um, and she said, well, I'm surprised you're not looking at philosophy of education. We have some very good philosophers of education here at uh, Harvard. Mm. Uh, she mentioned Israel Scheffler and La- Lawrence Kohlberg, who's not exactly a philosopher. Um, and that was the first time I'd heard the phrase philosophy of education. It was the first time I uh, ever imagined I'd actually go to a, a PhD program. Mm. Uh, and like many of us, I think I have these moments and we have a, these moments in our lives. And I wonder what, what what had happened, what would have happened to me if I hadn't walked into that office. Sure. Uh, and then I started looking at programs in philosophy of education. I did eventually apply to Harvard, but I went to Stanford uh, and worked there with. Uh, Two people mainly, Dennis Phillips uh, uh, and Arturo Pacheco. No Noddings also came, and I worked with her, but she wasn't one of my primary advisors. And uh, my own thinking is, has been, I think, shaped from the very start by the two very strong influences of Dennis, a very strong analytically oriented um, uh, philosopher of that sort of British tradition, sure. and Art Pacheco, a young Latino critical Marxist. Um, and uh, from then to probably to the, set, the present time, I sometimes imagine these two little angels on my sure. shoulders. Uh, and a lot of my work philosophically has been at that intersection between critical theory traditions and sort of traditional analytical philosophy. Uh, and I find myself often talking to one audience hmm. from the perspective of the other, saying, well, there's something here that you really should be paying attention to. Uh, And I suppose that position of being in between two different traditions and trying to hold them together and synthesize them has had a big influence on the way in which my own thinking has been developed. But it also affects, affects, I think, in a way, my role personally, Hmm. that I'm often in a situation where I'm trying to hold 
uh, two, two ends of the rope together that sure. everybody else feels have to be pulled in opposite directions. Uh, so uh, I said to uh, Harvey Siegel just last night, mm. maybe I'm just schizophrenic, maybe I'm sure. just confused, but I'm still trying to reconcile these different kinds of philosophical traditions. I wrote a paper once called Critical Thinking and Critical Pedagogy, sure. in which I was trying to actually synthesize these into a, a single view that I called criticality. So now, to my mind, uh, what's what's really fascinating about the story that you're that you're telling us here is that uh, your entry point, of course, was this sort of accidental stumbling into mm-hmm. uh, a tradition, or mm-hmm. at least the, the beginnings of a tradition right. uh, in various ways there in that that, that office in Harvard. Um, but then, uh, uh, to hear you describe it, you see yourself sort of at the uh, sort of um, uh, standing on a bit of a bridge, right, or mm-hmm. bridging uh, two separate traditions mm-hmm. uh, that don't speak to one another uh, quite fully enough mm-hmm. uh, on these questions of education, perhaps other questions as well, but uh, certainly on these questions of education. Now, how have you in your in your work over time sure. uh, really sort of uh, uh, brought those two perspectives or those two traditions sure. uh, together and on what sorts of, uh, of questions? I mean, why sure. is it important to bring uh, these, these, these two uh, 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 traditions uh, together on sure. questions of education? Okay, so let me answer that question yeah. on two different levels. Good. Uh, one is, uh, I think most people know, one of the, one of the themes that has held together my work from the very start till now is writing about dialogue. Yeah. Uh, and the very first paper I published on this topic with my, my student and now colleague Suzanne Rice was called Dialogue Across Differences. Yeah. Uh, and it's probably one of the most cited things that I've written. It's been translated and republished. Uh, in, in some ways, if I could pick one thing that I've written, that paper is kind of the stamp of what my whole outlook is. Okay. How do we create the conditions for com- dialogical, productive educational communication mm. between perspectives, paradigms, cultural traditions, Mm -hmm. identity positions, or philosophical schools of thought that don't naturally blend with each other, but Mm -hmm. where you're trying to maintain a dialogue that acknowledges the differences, but seeks to, uh, and doesn't try to reconcile them or merge them in some single voice, maintains the differences even, but respects them, but also doesn't fall back into the other view, which is sort of incommensurability. We can't understand each other Uh, because you come from perspective A, tradition A, culture A, race A, whatever it is, and I come from this other other thing. Uh, And so what are the conditions in which that kind of dialogue is fruitfully possible? That's one of the first things I published. Uh, I've come back to that topic again. I think I have a somewhat more skeptical view of dialogue now than I did then. I was more optimistic. Mm. Um, But I also still believe that we have to try to find some way to continue that conversation, even when it gets difficult, even when it gets contentious, even when there is some degree of talking past each other. So one way of answering your question is that, uh, if you will, at sort of a meta level, I'm trying to explain and justify this position, the position of being in between, the position of being, simple to say, a bridge builder, Mm. building bridges versus building walls or whatever that sort of cliche is. (laughs) But but there's something there, I suppose, that defines my personality as well as my philosophical outlook, trying to maintain conversations even when there's every reason in the world to give up because yeah. it's hard, it's difficult, it's frustrating or whatever. Um, and I think that's educationally significant. I think it's politically significant. Uh, but what can I say? I mean, most of all, I think it's an exemplification of who I am as a person uh, and whatever made me as a person. I'm, I'm always trying to engage people and keep people engaged with each other sure. who otherwise 
guys think they don't really have very much to learn from each other. Yeah. The other level of answer is uh, sort of in the content of what I'm work, sort of showing and not saying. Mm. Uh, and, I, and there's a lot of things that I've written, and, I, and there are a lot of people whose work, I'm not the only one, whose work I really respect and have learned from, who are often trying to put philosophical theories or traditions together that other people say, well, you can't combine sure. Foucault and Dewey, or you can't combine feminism and, you know, uh, positivism or whatever it sure. might be, that would be a, that would be a stretch. <laughs> but um, but you know my feeling is well why do we why do we rule these things out uh, as as not possible, not even yeah. worth trying or thinking about? Because if there's one thing that I've learned in philosophy, it's that you often can take a piece or an idea from this person mm. and weave it into something else. It might not be at a meta level completely compatible, but you know every philosopher even philosophers I d disagree with sure. have specific insights that are really smart and interesting and useful. Uh, I've learned a lot from the uh, from the positivists, from the Vienna Circle. Sure. I'm not of that tradition, but they're really smart people. Mm -hmm. And Carnap, and the, I mean, they have really useful things to say. Why can't I take that and put it together with some other piece? And the, the, the showing versus saying is, if it works, it works at the level of actually doing it and mm. showing that it does philosophical work, uh, as opposed to arguing a priori, is it possible or is it not possible to do it? Sure. In, in that broad sense, I, I suppose I'm a pragmatist, but uh, I'm, no, I'm no more grounded in pragmatism than I am, I think, probably in any other single tradition. Sure. So, so what, what I find really interesting about that is that, uh, so, so you've suggested something here about the way in which uh, kind of uh, holding that, that space for the dialogue, right, mm. that space of discussion uh, is valuable, is important. Mm. It's uh, sort of uh, politically important. It's educationally important. Mm. Uh, and I'm curious about uh, two things here. One, I'm curious, is it important because it produces something or is it sort of uh, important uh, just sort of in itself, right, that there's something about right. being in dialogue, right. in conversation uh, that's meaningful and important? Right. And the second thing that I wonder, uh, just to hear you describe uh, your, your work and your person uh, in that work, is you know by looking at, at your at your your CV and folks who have read your work, uh, you quite often uh, uh, do exactly what you say, right? Mm -hmm. You you're often working with others, right? Mm -hmm. uh, working in, I imagine, somewhat of a dialogue, a conversation. Mm -hmm. right. So the ideas are uh, sort of uh, uh, coming uh, or arising from uh, uh, this 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 uh, uh, meeting of two or more sure. uh, minds. And I, I wonder if that's intentional to sort of reflect, yeah. uh, as you say, uh, the importance of the dialogue. Sure. Um, so you've made two points. Yeah. I'm going to take the second first, sure. and I'll come back to the first. It, it is certainly a mark of my work yeah. that a lot of what I've written has been collaborative with other people, and not just one or two people, but sure. a lot of different people. Uh, people I have significant differences with and disagreements with. Uh, uh, and we're often working through those in the yeah. text that we're producing together. So I suppose in that way, again, I think I'm showing yeah. that a certain kind of dialogue across differences is, is, is both positive, productive, um, yeah. and fruitful. Uh, so, uh, and, and I know this. I've benefited enormously. I, I've had a lot of really good students, some of whom have become collaborators with me. I've written a lot of papers with students or former students, but also other colleagues in the field. And as I look back and think about these things, all I can think of is the 
is the things that I've learned from those collaborations. Mm -hmm. The ideas or concepts that they helped to explain to me that I really didn't understand or didn't really think was important or relevant that suddenly has became part of sure. my growing philosophical understanding. So selfishly, you know, sure. being a collaborator has been one of the smartest things I've ever done. Uh, it, it wasn't strategic. It wasn't intentional. Sure. Um, and I suppose each of those collaborations had its own reasons and its own justifications. But uh, the, the consequence has been that um, I'm, I'm, I'm linked to a lot of different kinds of issues, all the way from science education mm -hmm. uh, to uh, to sort of feminist post-structuralism you know, that, that, are, that I couldn't have ever done on my own uh, and wouldn't have been part of my portfolio. You know, philosophy is a tradition, like many humanities traditions, that's so much the, 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 cre the creation of the great individual. Mm. Um, and you don't, I mean, I, I, I couldn't think of the last major philosophical text that was co-authored by two people. Uh, yeah. Uh, there, there might be some, and I'm just not you know, smart enough to think about it at times, but certainly the classic things we think about, sure. Plato, Nietzsche, yeah. whatever, is like the great individual yeah. thinker. Uh, and I have lots of soul-authored things of you know, that I think are sort of mine. But uh, I think uh, there's no reason why collaboration can't be part of what we do, both within philosophy, mm -hmm. but also between philosophy and other fields. Okay. Um, so, and, and to me, I think that's an area of enrichment. I'm going to come back to this later when we talk about the future of the yeah. field. Uh, it'll be a theme I come back to then. Uh, your first point about yeah. whether it's we, collab we, we have dialogue because it's productive of something or because uh, it's good in itself, to me, I'll just say briefly, uh, I think that there are both epistemological and moral considerations here. Right. I think it is both productive in the way that syntheses or sort of you know dialectical interactions, uh, I'll be Hegelian for a second, sure. give rise to something new sure. uh, that wouldn't have come out if, if it didn't have the, the, the different sources that produced it. So it, it is both productive of something new and I see it as a social and moral imperative. Okay. Uh, and I think certainly, and some of that was written you know, 25 or more years ago, uh, certainly uh, as I look at the field, as I look at the issues that are facing education right now, higher education, for mm. example, um, there's, there's, there's a huge struggle between what are the conditions in which, let's say within the university, we can have discussions that are honest sure. and serious and realistic about real problems, sure. problems of race, problems of inequality, uh, problems of unequal power, um, problems of who feels welcome in the university and who doesn't. We have to be able to have those kinds of conversations, but they're hard. And I mean, you read the same papers that I do. You know, every day there's an example of how of those of those conversations breaking down, yeah. Um, and uh, I'm not naive. I understand the problems. I understand the anger. I understand a lot of things. But but we if we're, if we're going to be a university, if we're going to be an educational institution of any sort, sure. we have to try to create the conditions in which people feel safe saying certain kinds of things, and in which they can legitimately expect that they'll be heard and heard seriously and heard sincerely hmm. uh, on their own terms. So there's a way in which this sort of very abstract philosophical problem is also in some ways a very specific, concrete social and political problem. And again, as I've said, one that I personally feel very intensely. Um, I'm not always the perfect role model of this in my own teaching or in my own inter interaction with students and colleagues at my university. So I'm, I'm aware of the difficulties and the failures mm. uh, and the breakdowns, but that can't be a reason for giving up. 
because if we give up, then we, we don't have an educational institution anymore. We have something else. Hmm. I mean, it, it seems to my mind as though the uh, the possibility for, for dialogue and for uh, sort of uh, this very sort of robust uh, account of uh, the enduring conversation that is, uh, uh, that takes place in the educational institution uh, is one that is, uh, to some degree, uh, facilitated by, but also complicated by uh, the sort of the availability of uh, communication sort of technology that we've got sure. uh, in the present in the present uh, moment. Yeah. Uh, could, could you speak to that a little bit, sure. uh, the role that technology plays in kind of uh, allowing us to, to, to see and to speak right. to one another, uh, but then also frustrating our ability to do the same? Absolutely. Well, th- you know, it's, that's the perfect question. Because the other issue yeah. uh, that really I never started out to do technology. Hmm. Uh, I did a sabbatical in the middle 90s. I was in Australia and New Zealand, where at that time, the internet, w- the World Wide Web, was still kind of a new invention. It's sure. funny to think it's not sure. that long ago, uh, but it was. Uh, we didn't have an internet, you know, in in, in 1990, um, and then suddenly, within within a decade, it was it was everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. Um, but but Australia and New Zealand were early adopters because they were very aware of the fact that they were far away from everybody else and they needed these technologies to become part of a wider global conversation. Mm-hmm. So uh, that sabbatical was in 1996 was uh, the classic sabbatical in that it completely transformed my career. It created a whole new set of relationships, many of which have continued to this very day. But it put the issue of globalization, which Mm. is one thing, but especially the issue of technology front and center for me. I'm not a tech person, uh, but certainly this is the area that probably I'm best known for. Uh, a lot of international people know me for my work on technology and education who don't know anything about these other things, or mm-hmm. they start with that and they find the other things. So this has become the other strand. And you've perfectly touched on the point at which these come together for mm-hmm. me. Uh, one of the things that we have to think about if we're thinking about promoting dialogue now is the role that technolo- new technologies can play either to promote new kinds of dialogue, new ways of communicating, and or difficulties and impediments and barriers. Mm. Uh, so I've just finished a paper, for example, on social media, okay. uh, which is exemplifies just this issue. Sure. It's obvious in many ways that social media have created an explosion of new genres, of new ways of connecting, new ways of building networks, new kinds of political activism, yeah. uh, new conceptions of what a friend is and what sure. friendship is. And then I, I, I won't turn it into a lecture. It's, it's amazing. And we're all living through this time, and nobody really knows where it goes. But the paper is both, if you will, a celebration of that, but also uh, a challenging skepticism mm-hmm. towards some aspect of social media because like any medium uh, and, and this isn't just one thing Twitter sure. is not Facebook Facebook sure. is not uh, Yik Yak sure. Yik Yak is not a blog so it's not just one thing and that's the first point to make is that social media are actually a range of different kinds of media mm-hmm. or channels that each have their own distinct structural characteristics. And so if you're going to use Twitter, um, for example, and you only have 140 characters, that's going to produce a certain kind of genre, a certain kind of discourse. It's going to make certain kinds of things, pithy, little, provocative nuggets, uh, more popular. um, But it's also going to make long, careful, uh, carefully articulated arguments uh, much less possible. Sure. Interesting. Uh, And so I, I think we have to engage in these things realizing that 
um, and this is part of my general view of technology generally, it, it giveth and it taketh away. Sure. Uh, it provides certain kinds of affordances that can be used in all sorts of really interesting and provocative ways, and it structures and constrains things. And whether mm -hmm. we're talking about using technology in teaching, or in the case that we're talking now, uh, it, as a sort of medium of communication and networking, um, it has both these elements, you know, this, this tremendous potential and also a set of constraints. Um, and so the theme of that paper is participate by all means, but participate with a certain kind of critical awareness that when you put yourself into these media, uh, you're also shaping and constraining what can be said or the kinds of communication, sure. the kinds of communicative relations that can be created. Uh, and uh, here too is an area, going back to my very first articles, where I have this sort of two-sided ambivalence. Sure. Uh, I, I, I am certainly enthusiastic and excited about technology, what you're doing here sure. with this project, uh, but I'm also a critic and a skeptic. And I used to say, whenever I'm talking to an audience of skeptics, they say, why are you so naively enthusiastic about technology? And when I speak to the people who are, who are celebrants of technology, why are you being so negative sure. and down on it? Uh, and again, part of my personality, part of my my substantive outlook is I'm, I'm a both-and person. Sure. Uh, I, I, I don't want to give up the potential. I don't want to give up the exciting affordances, but I can't not also question and criticize and be skeptical about the ways in which these technologies aren't just facilitating our action and our goals and our aims, but also changing our sure. interactions, changing our goals, changing our aims. They're not just media. Sure. They're not just passive, to use a phrase I hate, delivery systems. Uh, they substantively change, shape, and constrain what we can do. And again, Twitter would be the obvious example, right? There's just only certain things you can do yeah. with 140 characters. Um, and there's things, and, and so if we're going to participate, we have to realize that we're giving up something. Hmm. We're gaining something, but we're also giving up something. And that would be true for each of these media or options that are in front of us. One reason to keep a lot of them open. Sure. Uh, one of the things that I do in my online teaching, not to talk about that part, but I do a lot of online teaching, is all my classes have what I call multiple channels hmm. of communication. Uh, typical classroom, in a real classroom, basically only has two channels of communication. Communication between the professor and the students, okay. and communication between the students. Sure. Um, and it's all live, it's all real time, it's all synchronous, as we say. Sure. Um, and uh, I love the classroom, I love teaching in a classroom, but I'm very aware that those, that range of channels is communicative channels is limited. Mm -hmm. Not everybody thrives in that environment. Students are shy, sure. uh, they're quiet, they're speaking in a second language, and they don't participate very much. Uh, they're intimidated by the students who are always the first ones to raise their hands and always seem to have something to say. Mm. Uh, the kind of student you and I probably were sure. in, these, in these courses <laughs> when we took them. You know, and then there's a person who's saying, it takes me five minutes to think about what I want to say, sure. and by then the discussion has moved on. Sure. So one of the many virtues of online uh, instruction is you can create multiple channels. One-to-one, mm. one-to-many, one synchronous, asynchronous, large group, small group, mm. text, Audio, sure. video, sure. and yeah. people can, and, and you don't have to choose between them. Right. They're, all, They're available all available to you. To you. And the student who says, I don't really speak up very much in the synchronous chats, 
But when I have a chance to actually think about things and type up my comments and edit them and reread them and then push post, you know, I really think I have something to say. So they're going to be more mm -hmm. active in the asynchronous forum than the synchronous forum. Uh, some people, I, I teach, I, I taught an online class the other night from my hotel room here. You know, some people use text exclusively. Other people use audio exclusively. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't force them one way or the other because I assume that they're going to find the channels that they feel most comfortable with and that work for them. So the overall result, I think, is more students participate more actively because they're not forced to these either-or choices. Um, and as much as I love the traditional classroom, it's not seen sure. as a welcoming, inclusive place for a lot of students. Sure. Uh, so so to, my, to my ears, it, it sounds as though uh, there might be a bit of a theme in uh, the ideas that you've mentioned. I mean, first, uh, thinking about uh, your traditional uh, uh, sort of uh, allegiances mm -hmm. uh, kind of responding uh, or calling the traditions uh, that, that you've worked in to respond to one another, mm -hmm. then thinking about uh, uh, dialogue in some ways as uh, uh, being able to respond right. well to, to, to the other. Uh, and then also, of course, now thinking about technology and the mm -hmm. types of responses that uh, we can have or that are facilitated by that response. And then also, of course, the teaching uh, uh, component here and thinking about how we can uh, respond when being taught or when uh, learning with others. I wonder if you might have anything to say about uh, the way in which philosophy of education itself uh, may be poised to respond uh, to the world around it, uh, this changing world, this dynamic world. Uh, what might be on the horizon uh, for work in uh, philosophy of education, to your yeah. mind? Um, so so that, that's, that's a good question. I, I, I suppose I've made it sound as if all these different pieces work together in a, in a nicely planned, coherent way. Uh, it didn't really happen that way, and sure. uh, and some of it is backfilling what looks like a sort of fully thought through position that really was just mishmashed together sure. because I had to make sense of the different things I was doing. Sure, um, but it, it's it's gone well for me. In terms of where philosophy of education is today, I, I, I suppose there's sort of two aspects of this in my mind that are live, and, and some of them have been conversations at this very conference. One is sort of professionally. Um, and I, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm not optimistic mm. about some of the professional aspects of sure. our field. Sure. Uh, you know, I tell a lot of my students, you're never going to get a job like yeah. mine. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm a philosopher of education, hired to do philosophy of education. Yeah. Uh, I do other things, but, you know, my job was basically right in my comfort zone. Sure. And I was lucky enough to get a position that basically allowed me to do more or less exactly what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, I think that there are opportunities for philosophers of education professionally, but most of them are not going to be jobs that say philosophy of education on the headline. Of course. Uh, I'm not saying they've disappeared entirely, uh, but there just aren't as many as there used to be. And when I came out of grad school in the, in the late 80s, early mm -hmm. 80s, uh, I, was, I was being told then, you sure. know, you better develop some secondary and tertiary exper expertise because you may not be able to find a job in this position. And I, uh, I'm very lucky, very fortunate mm. that, I, that I have one. Um, so the, the downside is that I think professionally uh, people are going to have to work harder at carving out a space Okay. to do this kind of work. Um, having said that, uh, this could be seen as a benefit in the, in the following way. One of, the, one of my strands in current works is what I'm calling sort of situated philosophy of education, okay. uh, by which I mean doing work in philosophy. It isn't just applied. I don't like that word applied. It's doing philosophy of education in the context 
of other discussions, the context of policy discussions, or research methodology discussions, or professional ethics discussions. Um, I actually think that for a variety of reasons, including new technologies, there are more interesting philosophical questions in education more than ever before. I don't, there's new and exciting ones, let's put it that way, sure. uh, that, that are crying out for philosophical insight, yeah. analysis, yeah. critique. Yeah. Um, and we just talked about some. There's the, the, the raging debates about diversity and inclusion on sure. university campuses and other educational institutions and what it actually means to create an institution that has both a safe space environment for people to feel like they can speak, right. and the virtues of a public space right. in which many, many voices, including contending voices, sure. can engage each other. I mean, I, I don't need to tell you. Sure. Those are two values. It's a real tension. That, but yeah. that, which means there's a tension. Yeah. Well, who helps us to think that through? Yeah. You know, the philosopher raises their hand and says, I can help with this, mm. right? We have something to say about this. Um, so in many ways, I think that there are, if not more, certainly there's new new areas that are crying out. But the philosopher, and I've felt this for a long time, sometimes has to be a little bit of a, a, a sort of a guerrilla hmm. uh, fighter where you're sort of doing what you're doing in secret, okay. uh, if, you want to say, if you want to put it that way. Okay. I've been at many tables in my life, uh, committee, you know, uh, university committees or grant writing projects, hmm where, you know, uh, I may not even know the other people or they might not know me and there's a conversation about whatever there's a conversation about and occasionally, I'm not shy, I will raise my hand and say, well, I think there's an important distinction here to make between this aspect of the problem and this aspect sure. of the problem or uh, I think we're using this word in different ways. Sure. And I can't tell you how many times in my life people who don't know me have turned and said, I'm so glad that you're here. Mm. You know, you've really helped us to sort of structure this conversation in a fruitful way and then I say something version of, well, this is what philosophers do, Good. you know, and then Good. people say, really? Good. That, that's Good. philosophy? Um, and so, you know, it, it's those experiences, and it's related also to this, the structure of collaboration that you right. pointed out earlier, um, that has convinced me that philosophy is tremendously valued hmm. um, when you're actually doing it. Sure. Um, the, the problem is getting at the table. You know, uh, and by the way, the problem is also choosing to be at the table. You know, uh, and I suppose this is something else that defines me as a person. When someone says, "Will you come and help us work on this project?" I'm not the kind of person who says that I'm not really interested in that right now. I'm I'm working on my book. Um, one consequence is, there's a couple of books I have to write that I haven't sure. written. Um, but, the, but the benefit is that I'm at those tables. Right. Um, it takes a lot of time sometimes. It's not always advancing my work directly. But I think it is advancing the benefits that people see to philosophy as a useful partner in policy, research methodology, grant writing, university policy. I mean, make the range of things about which a philosopher has something to contribute. So that's why I use this sort of this gorilla, this gorilla metaphor. Uh, sometimes we have to be sneaky in sort of being philosophers without foregrounding or headlining, because mm -hmm. once you say it, then people say, oh yeah, I took a course in philosophy in undergrads. It was the most boring class. Yeah, <laughs> big, thick books that I never really could understand. Um, and they don't see philosophy as a set of analytical and critical tools that can actually help advance other conversations. So again, the doing of it, the showing of it, is where I think we actually convince people that it's worthwhile. So looking forward, 
I think that we have to see a, feel, a future in which the pure, isolated, solo philosopher of education is probably going to have a hard time professionally. Mm -hmm. um, but the collaborator, colleague, the person at the table who brings philosophical issues into engagement with other important areas and questions in education could be even more highly valued mm -hmm. than, than ever. I mean, I've never really felt like I have to struggle to find an audience for sure. my work. Um, and I'm not bragging about it, but I get invitations to talk all around the world. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I'm proud of that. But I think it's also because of the kind of work that I do. Because the people who invite me are not always inviting me as a philosopher. Right. Uh, or at least they don't think of it that way. And then what they get is the contributions of a philosopher. So thinking about that space where we're doing philosophy and doing philosophy as a part of a conversation, again, to use that theme, exactly, with yeah. other areas, I think is, uh, I think, frankly, it's the only future we're going to have. Uh, you know, there's going to be a smattering of maybe a few jobs where people are uh, philosophers of education purely, but I, I'm not even sure that's going to continue for much longer. Um, so every single one of my students gets a heavy dose of this. Sure. Uh, and th they've got jobs all over the country, and the jobs have all kinds of different labels on them and titles on them. Uh, but they're all doing philosophy of education, um, but they're doing it, I won't say behind the scenes, but they're, 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 they're doing it in engagement. So that's where yeah. this idea of situated philosophy of education comes from, and I, I won't launch into a lecture about that. But the idea is that we do philosophy in the context of a set of issues and problems that are not primarily or apparently philosophical. And yeah. then we have to sort of convince people that they really are. But it does sound like a fantastic way forward for the field uh, to sort of engage folks uh, who might, as you, as you put it so well, uh, folks who are interested in these issues uh, but don't see space for philosophy at the table, uh, but do recognize the value that we bring to that, uh, to that very same table. Yeah. Well, and, and part of it also is, you know, and maybe this is another sort of aspect of the gorilla metaphor, is getting people to do philosophy who don't realize that they're doing philosophy. Right. You're kind of seducing them into this. Uh, and then only then say, well, this is what philosophers sure. do. Um, because it doesn't fit people's preconceptions. You know, right. People think that the philosopher is the, uh, the old white man with a long sure. beard or short sure. beard, you know, thinking great multisyllabic thoughts that sure. basically only other initiates to the coded language of philosophy either can understand or really care about. Right. Uh, and God knows there's plenty of that sure. out there. Um, there's no future for us doing that. Yeah. So it's partly, frankly, a strategic thing, but to draw a theme back that I've mentioned repeatedly already, it will make our philosophical work better and truer and more grounded if we maintain these conversations. Because yeah. there's less room for abstract, uh, solipsistic, self-indulgent speculation, although I like a little bit of that as much as anybody, uh, and more What's the use of this? What's mm. the benefit of this? Um, and frankly, honestly, if we can't make that case, no one else is going to make that case for us. Um, yeah. And then we really will be in trouble. Nick Bergelis, thank you so much for a fantastic dialogue. Good. It's Thanks. been a pleasure. Thanks, Winston. For more information and to review previous episodes, please visit www.pipeline.fm. Very special thanks to Moby for use of his song Summer as our theme.